0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today's episode concerns the mind's eye. It concerns mental imagery. And so we decided that uh, the best way to kick off this episode is to take you on a little guided mental journey.
1: Yeah, so close your eyes unless you're driving or doing something that requires your eyes <laughs> to be open. And in that case, don't close your eyes. If you, if you are able to close your eyes, close your eyes. If not, just imagine you're eight years old. And you're walking along a beach with your mother. You're barefoot. The tide is coming in and you see trails of footprints leading back and forth along the beach where other people have walked the same path today. But the waves are coming higher and higher and slowly smoothing all those footprints away. But then you look up at your mother and you notice something strange. She's wearing armor. A steel chestplate and a visored helm with chainmail drooping across her arms and legs, rustling lightly as she walks. Across the front of her chestplate is a painted figure. It's Foghorn Leghorn.
0: She raises the visor on her helm and smiles at you. A mosquito hovers in front of her face, and she flails one arm to knock it away, and you both laugh. But then you notice something else. Your mother has a piece of metal dangling from her hip opposite you. It's a long sword. She puts one hand on the hilt and says, "Don't worry, only a bit of insurance in case he shows up." A wave of seawater rolls up over your feet, washing dry sand from between your toes and you ask, "Who?" Then there's a faint rumbling under your feet. It's not just the tickling wash of the waves. The ground is shaking. And about 200 meters
1: out in the water, a dark shape begins to rise up from the waves. At first it's just a green-black lump, but then the huge, glaring eyes, the cavernous mouth climbing higher and higher as it approaches. It's Godzilla. Not the friendly Godzilla who defends Earth against all the heel monsters. This is the angry Godzilla who breathes beams of radiation and crushes ten-story buildings with a single swipe. Your mother puts an arm across your chest. She draws her long sword and says, stand back. This could get serious.
0: And with the flip of a switch, her hover boots engage, her feet lift off the ground, and then she's rocketing toward the head of the monster to defend the realms of humankind. Alright, so uh, we, we tried to draw in a few different types of uh, of imagery there, a few different types of memory,
1: memory as well. Right, we wanted to have sort of generic landscape that would be easy for a lot of people to picture like a beach, most people have some kind of image generically mm-hmm. of what a beach looks like we also wanted something familiar uh, usually they say to picture a, a relative or a familiar family member so hopefully you got an image of, of a mother or family figure there, but then also some pop culture images, right, uh, right. most people hopefully know what godzilla looks like if you don't you got to go back and watch the original <laughs> godzilla from the 50s i'm mean. right uh and then uh and then foghorn leghorn a personal favorite of mine
0: you know it's, one of the interesting things with this uh, exercise is to think back on it and think back of the specifics and ask yourself questions like who did i have a more vivid memory of what i looked like as a child what my mother looked like what Godzilla looked like, and, and these details are not necessarily telling of your relationship with your mother versus your relationship with Godzilla, but uh, but but it, it kind of just raises uh, our awareness of the the vast spectrum of visual stimuli that are informing our our inner vision of the world. Yeah,
1: and this is a strange thing because the only person who can experience your mental imagery is you you can sort of describe your mental imagery to other people, but Mm -hmm. nobody can take a look at it to see what it is you're picturing in your mind. So this is something that you largely have to deal with entirely on your own, and you don't know how similar or how different your own process of mental imagery is to that of other people unless you really put your heads together and start talking about your mental images in detail and trying to figure out if there
0: are differences. It's not a a standard thing that people do, really. Right, because even to describe it, if I describe... My mental images to you, they become your mental images, right? Like it's in a way I'm kind of panning off the blueprints and then you build a different building. It's the same building, but a different building. And likewise, maybe you paint, maybe you write um, in some other artistic medium. You create music to try and convey these images in your head. But you're still, but you're still then limited by your artistic ability and then other people's interpretations of those works of art.
1: You know, I already realized I didn't think about this when I was writing this, but I I did already see a contradiction in what I told people to imagine. What's that? The original angry Godzilla, but then I also said green black, right? Well, Godzilla in color is sort of greenish black,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but the original angry yeah, Godzilla black and, black and white, yeah.
0: He's just all, you know, you look at him and he just looks like this charred monster, yeah. you know? So
1: this is a, this is already a mental confabulation on my part. I'm, I'm imagining a, a Godzilla that never existed anywhere in reality. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so most of you were with us there on that journey. You were to some extent able to picture some of the things we were talking about. You could see in your mind's eye the beach, the armor, your mother, the sword, the foghorn leghorn, the Godzilla. But there are some people who probably couldn't see any of that. They were there with us. They were understanding the concepts. They were able to follow the plot, uh, whatever plot yeah. there was. And they could probably recount a list of the events that happened in the little scene we just described. Mm-hmm but they couldn't see any of it in their imagination. And this is the concept we're going to be talking about today. One study has found that this might be about up to one in 50 people who have this kind of experience where they just don't create pictures inside their mind the way most people do. Uh, And this condition now has come to be known as aphantasia or the blindness of the mind's eye. So the American biotech leader, Craig Venter, you know about him, right? He's uh, famous for being a leader in the quest to sequence the human genome, Mm -hmm. and he's famous for uh, creating uh, synthetic organisms. Uh, So he has actually described that he has an unusual way of thinking, a way of thinking that's essentially purely conceptual, like we've been describing, without any mental imagery. Uh, Venter says, quote, it's like having a computer store the information, but you don't have a screen attached to the computer. Huh. He's describing his own mind. I don't know. I, I have trouble uh, understanding what that would be like. Right. Uh, but maybe, maybe to understand it better, we should first look at some facts about what the mind's eye itself is. Before we get into the blindness of the mind's eye,
0: what's going on when you create pictures in your head? Well, of course – We're talking about mental imagery here, but also there are some other sensations thrown in as well. It all amounts to a quasi-perceptional experience that occurs in the absence of the appropriate external stimuli. Um, So I can close my eyes. I can see a deceased loved one's face. I can hear their voice. I can imagine myself standing on the shore of a distant ocean, a past ocean, or even some future shore that I haven't even walked on yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this is the kind of thing that I mean, most of us take for granted. Yeah. Uh, we, we use it. We employ it every day. Um, well, I mean, as I did with the angry Godzilla in color, you can picture things you've never actually seen. Right. Yeah. You, you can, yeah, there are things if you're like me, I feel there are things in books, for instance, no one has ever painted a picture of this character or this scene. Uh, and yet you have a, a very crystal clear vision. Like I have a better visual memory of some things that have occurred in books. Uh, than things that have occurred in real life, you
1: know, oh yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about uh is isn 't it so weird to finally see a book you 've read, but it 's never been illustrated mm-hmm. or uh made into a film or anything finally made visual by someone else it's always people always have the same reaction that 's not what I thought so and so looked yeah, like that
0: 's not what it looks like, yeah now, the things we perceive in the mind's eye they're they're products of memory they're constructed from specific or varied memories. Uh, they may be accurate. They may be amalgams of diverse influences. Really, this runs the gamut from something you saw yesterday that you near perfectly remember, to a you know vague sight from your childhood that you at least think you remember, to an envisioned future scene in your own life, something you dreamt, something you daydreamed, a landscape you viewed from the imagined walls of a fictional world of your own creation, of a of an, uh, an author's creation. <laughs> it's just like pretty much any time we are envisioning something, we, any time we are closing our eyes or even with our eyes open, are imagining something. We are seeing something in our mind. That is, of course, the mind's eye uh, doing its thing.
1: Yeah, and I think this has always been a very interesting avenue for philosophy Mm -hmm. to investigate, because it is something that uh, we recognized was sort of strange about the human experience before we had neuroscience or psychology or, or any of these scientific ways of investigating it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it it obviously plays such a central role in the way we navigate the world and the way we think about time in a world of movable objects, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, we've been as long as we've had philosophers, as long as we've had people uh, among us with uh, with time to you know look up from their labors and think about the human condition. We've been thinking about the mind's eye. Um, for, on the podcast here we've talked about the method of loki before the uh, the ancient Greek technique in which uh, a person utilizes spatial memory to memorize non-spatial information uh, like that kind of plays into into some of this that involves a certain amount of uh, of reflection on what's on how we're using the mind's eye you know i I've tried to use the method of
1: loci and I have not been very good at it yeah i I wonder if I'm just not doing it right like I when I'm able to to really get it set in my mind, it does help me remember. By the way, this is – so a quick version of it is if you need to make a list of digits of numbers to remember, you're not going to remember those digits. So instead, you imagine your house being full of odd characters that each embody one of the digits in yeah. that number sequence uh, and then you can remember by picturing the room and where all of the odd characters were in the room and, and then you just remember what digit they correspond to or something like that
0: yeah like a very simplified version of this that i have employed frequently in the past it's kind of like a um uh, you know, often called the memory palace, uh, because it's a, a, a an imagined place that you fill with these examples. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes I only have room in my mind for one example. And that is, uh, that's when I am swimming laps and I want to remember what number lap I'm on Uh huh. because if I forget the lap number, then I'm going to make myself revert to the, to the lower, uh, number. So if I, if I don't know for sure I'm on four, I'm going to do three. And I don't want to keep doing one less than I want to do because I'm going to wear myself out, right? But I'm also busy swimming. I'm having a hard time necessarily remembering which lap I am currently on. So instead of trying to remember four, as easy as that would seem, I find it easier to just force myself to think of, say, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Like think of think of that, and that'll stick in my head just a little better as I'm uh, you know vigorously uh, uh, swimming these laps. Um, you know, so it'll just be some sort of uh, visual association with just a single digit. I don't okay. know. I don't know if anybody else out there has has done something of that 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 nature, but that is kind of a simplified um, good gravy. memory palace. What's
1: what's your visual image for eight? I can't think of anything for eight.
0: Oh, for eight, I think of uh, uh, Alan Rob Gourlay's The Voyeur, where you have a character who keeps making uh, figure eights out of rope. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So I think of him sitting by the shore, uh, not quite contemplating horrible things and making little figure eights. That's a good thing to have in your mind when (laughs) you're at the gym. Yeah. (laughs) Or the YMCA, I guess, wherever you swim laps. So one of the important things uh, to, when when thinking about the memory palace and then ultimately thinking about memory and the mind's eye is just to, to refresh here a little bit about human memory itself. Mm-hmm. Human memory is not just like a tape reel rolling in the brain that we just, oh, let's go back and look and see what happened yesterday. Right. Human memory in, in c- multiple ways. It's not right, like in multiple it's ways. Certainly not that accurate. Right. Because human memory consists of several different types of memory that are working in uh, kind of an unequal uh, chorus. Um, to create the human experience of memory that we have. So we have sensory memory, um, you know, what something feels like, what it smell uh, smells like, that sort of thing. We have short-term memory, and we have long-term term memory we have uh, and then uh, in, uh, we divide long term memory out we have explicit memories of consciousness we have implicit memories of unconsciousness we have uh, declarative memories of facts and events we have procedural memories involved that involve skills and tasks we have episodic memory uh, that deals with events and experiences and we have semantic memory that concerns facts and concepts so we have all these different types of memories each one dealing with a, with a in a way certain uh, you know different types of skills different types of uh, ways of utilizing memory when we engage with the world and uh, studies have shown in the past that uh if you have a part of the brain associated with one type of memory is injured sometimes you see those other types of memory compensating hmm. so it's like a in, a in a way it's like a staff it's like a staff of different memory drones and they all have their jobs to do but if somebody's slacking then it may fall to another employee to uh to to you know to step up and uh, and cover for their shortcomings.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good metaphor. The the brain is more like a workforce than a machine. If one mm-hmm. part of a machine breaks, the whole machine probably isn't going to work, but if one part of a workforce is slacking or, or calls in sick today, the others can often find a way to cover for them.
0: Right. And they might cover, you know, everyone does their job a little bit differently so their uh their skill set might allow them to cover in a slightly different way. But back to philosophers. So <laughs> <laughs> Philosophers continue to argue about uh, the mind's eye, and we're certainly not going to be able to do an exhaustive journey uh, through all of their, uh, their takes. But you go back as far as Plato, for example, and Plato brought us one of the, the most famous examples of this. Uh, he utilizes mental images in his famous allegory of the cave. Yeah, and that's sort of the idea that the world that
1: we perceive is not the true reality. You know? mm-hmm. But Plato had this whole belief in ideal forms, You know, things mm-hmm. that were the more true version of the thing than
0: the, the thing we're familiar with. Right. There's a realm of forms out there, and in that realm of forms, there's such thing as a perfect chair. Yeah. But in this world, we can only build imperfect chairs that inch maybe a little closer and closer towards that unobtainable ideal.
1: Yeah. And so his metaphor for explaining this was that of the cave, where there are people who are chained up in a cave and they don't even really realize that they're in a cave, and uh, and there's an opening to the cave through which light comes through, and figures pass in front of the opening to the cave, casting shadows on the wall of the cave. Mm-hmm. And all we see, we're facing the back of the cave, the wall, and we see the shadows, and we think the shadows are the real things, but right. they're not. They're they're only the uh, the sort of like uh, the vague outlines
0: of the things that that are the true forms. If anyone out there is watching the Path on Hulu, uh, there's actually a scene um, uh, in the first episode where they they roll out this uh, this allegory and it's it's pretty entertaining yeah but um but uh, I mean cause certainly it's an it's an allegory you can have a lot of fun with, either trying to contrast your worldview to another individual's worldview to try and win someone over with your um true version of reality yeah. versus their um their you know their illusion based uh, understanding of reality but it also you know gets down to like what is our perception of reality itself these mental images that fill our mind when we close our eyes <sighs> those are imperfect yeah, but also the mental images when we have our eyes open, we're still just in—in in a sense, we are still just seeing those shadows on the walls of the cave. Yeah. So Aristotle uh, also uh, referred to mental imagery uh, in his work, referred to it as uh, as a uh, phantasia uh, with an F, with a P, not an F, so right? Not the Disney movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this was central to his theory of memory. Yeah. Though
1: you know, I can see why the Disney movie would be called that. I mean, they. Uh it evokes the concept of fantasy, even though he didn't, I think, directly mean fantasy in the mm-hmm. way we do, like uh, somebody coming up with a, with a fantasy to escape from life. It, yeah, it was the idea of being able to, uh, to imagine things in your mind. Right.
0: Now, uh, Rene Descartes also thought a lot about mental imagery and how they form in the mind. Uh, the view that uh, an idea is a quasi perceptual thing, perhaps even pictorial. Formed in the imagination, and he did distinguish between images formed in the brain and ideas in the mind uh, because he was a dualist. He saw uh, uh, he saw the mind and the body as separate. The essence of mind is thought and the body is an extension of it. Thoughts are not uh, extended in space, but the body is. Now, elsewhere in philosophy, you have uh, you have like, idealism, which states that reality is equivalent to mental images, and the mental images are reality itself. Well, yeah, I mean, if you
1: want to take this very far, the the people who believe in hardcore idealism would probably say that there is no, it, like, that reality is merely the mental image of a higher being or something right.
0: like that yeah so uh, as you can see you can really go down the deep end uh, into the deep end uh, uh contemplating mental imagery and what are the the philosophical ramifications of it um there's a you know there's a lot there's a great deal more we could discuss. This is kind of the, the philosophical groundwork, I guess you could say. Um, for instance, though, uh, in the 1980s, there was a great deal of debate over the con- over the connection from uh, between mental images and language. Yeah. So one side argued that representations underlying the experience of mental imagery. Are the same type as those used in language, and then there was the other camp, and they held that that these representations serve to depict, not describe objects. Okay, so what does that mean in practice? Well, my understanding is it basically comes down to, you know, to to what extent is mental imagery like the 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 groundwork of language itself? Okay. Um, well, like I said earlier, at times it feels like it's it's very difficult to um, to overstate the importance of mental imagery. In our perceptions of reality, um, so just how deep does that go? Does it underlie just about everything in cognition? Does it underlie language? Does it underlie, um, you know, just every little detail of our experience?
1: Yeah. Well, this does seem to sort of tie into uh, stuff we talked about in the tip of the tongue episode. Oh, where yeah. You can, uh, you can perhaps, you can have the face in your mind. You know, oh, I know this actor's face, and you mm-hmm. can picture it. And you can know the actor's name well enough that if somebody said it, you'd be like, yeah, that's it. Uh huh. You'd immediately recognize it, but you can't make the connection. But of course, in recent years, uh, we've seen the study of mental imagery make a more scientific transition. I think uh, we, we've started to look at it from a neuroscientific point of view, where people are saying, OK, well, w- let's identify what brain regions are actually being used and activated when people are in the process of coming up with mental pictures. And uh, one of the sources we used for this episode, it was a paper by Adam Zaman and colleagues. And and uh, th- these authors identified that. Essentially, in the brain, voluntary imagery, Mm -hmm. the the mental images you come up with have been associated in previous research with the brain's frontoparietal executive systems or the executive control, you know, the president of your brain Mm -hmm. sitting there directing traffic and with the posterior brain regions, which, you know, in the back of the brain, that's often the identified with visual processing. And together, you sort of put these things uh, uh, in, into a teamwork relationship, and they are what allows you to come up with mental pictures.
0: That's right. And uh, we've also seen studies where we've taken fMRI, we've done PA, we've done PET scans on individuals summoning mental images. You know, they're asked to summon a mental image, and then we we look at the brain, see what it's doing in real time. And, uh, it reveals uh, activation in brain areas that are used in visual perception, which, you know, doesn't sound that surprising. Uh, But but this is pretty cool. Uh, Visual and mental imaging uh, share roughly two thirds of the same activated brain region. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of crossover there between the visual and mental imaging systems, a lot of shared mechanics. Yeah, like if you, for example, if you show somebody a picture of somebody's face Mm -hmm. and then you ask
1: the same test subject, imagine this person's face, a lot of their brain activity is going to be roughly
0: similar. Right. In fact, the 1997 study found that uh, when the same task is performed in perception, and then with eyes closed, using mental images, you get 90 percent overlap. Okay. So, wow. You know, so, again, a lot of the same mechanisms, a lot of the same brain equipment is being used, uh, whether you're dealing with just visual perception or mental perception. Of course, that's funny because the
1: the phenomenal experience is completely different. Right. Like right. You uh somebody <laughs> to somebody who has a fantasia this might be new information but it's obviously not going to be new information to most people out there uh when you picture something in your mind's eye it is extremely different than seeing it in front of you but it's hard to explain how it's different
0: yeah you know yeah, you know, there's a um, there's a 2015 BBC article titled um, A Fantasia, A Life Without Mental Images by James Gallagher. And I'll be sure to include a link to that article on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com because uh in addition to to running through some examples of uh some accounts of individuals who have this mind, blindness of the mind's eye, which we're going to discuss more here. There's also a quiz you can take. Yeah. Uh, and it's just an eight question quiz about uh, you know, asking you like the level of detail that you experience when you are asked to mentally envision. Uh, You know, someone you see every day, yeah. uh, a, a sunrise, I believe, clouds in the sky, the clouds clearing in the sky, a thunderstorm, The the these sort of images, some of the same kind of stuff that we ask you to summon at the beginning of this episode.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't just ask you, can you picture it? It asks you to rank level of detail. So, for example, mm-hmm. it might say picture uh, get someone in mind and maybe a close friend or a spouse or a close family member and picture that person. And then on a scale of not very well at all to extremely well, how well can you see in your mind's eye the contours of their face right. and the shape of their body and what color their eyes are? And, and so it's asking for specific details of the image to, to get at the vividness of the picture in your mind. And that suggests to me, and I think their findings do suggest so far, that it's not just an on-off switch. It's not like you can make pictures with your mind or you can't. There seems to be a spectrum. That's right. Uh, some people seem to have very intense, very lucid, vivid mental images. Other people have kind of hazier, blurrier, or more generic mental images. And some people have almost no mental imagery at all or even report having none. And it so at the opposite end of the scale of the main topic today, you know, we're talking about these aphantasiacs, but... There's also what's come to be known as hyperphantasia, right? Yeah. And these would be people who I think would experience visions of the mind eye with just extreme lucidity as far compared to most of us. So they're not just vague pictures, but they have bright colors and vivid details. So if I tell you, imagine a beach, Uh you might picture sand and waves and maybe some umbrellas. But I bet you wouldn't naturally say, okay, I can tell you there are seven umbrellas in the picture in my mind, and these are the colors of stripes on the umbrellas. But somebody might actually be able to have that level of vi- vividness in their mind's eye.
0: Yeah, this idea of uh, a spectrum of, um, of, of, of mental detail and visual imagery, it, uh, it really makes you reanalyze just how you're painting the picture in your head of uh, these memories, you know, like it, I think we both uh, scored around the same on this where we had kind of like typical yeah, mental I was, imagery. I was in the typical range. Yeah. Uh, but even even then, I was I found myself asking questions like, well, how when I think about these people that I see every day in my life and that are very important to me, uh you know, what does it mean that I don't have like just a picture perfect vision of them? What does it mean that when I think back on a beach, I find my uh, like a sunrise on a beach? I keep thinking of, um, you know, images of sunrises fr- uh, from paintings and films uh, more so than actual beach sunrises that I've witnessed. And you
1: think about the final scene of the Warriors.
0: Yeah, that sort of thing. Like, I end up, like, putting a fictional Instagram filter over all of these these memories, and I'm not really remembering, I'm not really summoning a mental image of a thing I actually saw. I'm summoning this mental image that's composed of these varying elements. You know, one thing I read
1: when we were uh, doing our research for this episode was a first-person essay that I came across by the uh, software designer Blake Ross, who was involved in uh, Mozilla Firefox and uh-huh. Facebook, and he's also done some screenwriting. And he he found out after reading an article, I think in uh, either in the New York Times or in Discover Magazine by Carl Zimmer about uh, aphantasia, that he, he had this experience, and he also was just shocked to find out that other people weren't like him. His discovery was that, oh, I never realized other people could see pictures in their minds. His whole life, he thought when people said stuff like, picture this, they were just being metaphorical. He didn't realize other people could actually hold these pictures in their brains, And in this essay, he starts, he recounts how when he found out about this, he was asking all his friends, what's it like to picture something in your mind and asking all these questions. I've never really thought to ask myself about my process of mental imagery that were very interesting. Like he was asking his friends, okay, when you see a picture in your mind, like you picture a beach, is it still, is it a still photograph or is it more like video where things are moving? And that distinction just hit me like a wrecking ball. I was like... I don't know. When I picture something in my mind, I can make it move consciously if I need to. But when I just picture a beach... It is almost neither still nor moving. It is it yeah. exists in superposition between these two things.
0: It's kind of, for me. I guess it, when I think about it, it's kind of like the old um, music video for what was it, where the people go into the painting or into the drawing? Uh, take on, take me. on me. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. I feel like my my mental imagery is kind of like uh, the the Take on Me video. Oh, okay. Where it stuff is moving, but it's all kind of stationary as well yeah well i mean i certainly can
1: imagine something moving on purpose but when mm-hmm. i just picture a thing and i don't imagine it moving on purpose i don't think it's still but it's not moving
0: either it's yeah. very strange it reminds me of um two of the experience of reading a book especially a book that is set more or less in the real world and at times i'll find myself stopping and thinking about Like, oh, I'm picturing this in this living room from, that I, that I, you know, visited or lived in at some point in my life. Like that for some reason is the living room that my brain is drawing in for this setting. Or I'm picturing this character. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the the character just is that character and, and you, there's not really like a firm mental image in your head exactly what they look like. Other times you can't shake their, um, the, uh, their appearance as being uh, that of someone, you know, or, uh, or, uh, you know, a character actor from a movie, et cetera. But uh, I, I do find myself like analyzing, like where are all these elements coming from? Like some of them are obviously coming from the, the author. The author is providing the, um, the blueprint. The author is providing the scaffolding, but then that scaffolding is kind of like magnetically drawing in elements from my own visual memory. Yeah, definitely. Uh,
1: I know exactly what you're talking about there. Uh, an interesting thing about fiction that uh that Blake Ross says in his first person essay about this is he he reports that so he's always read books you know he's enjoyed fiction and he's written fiction, but when he writes fiction, he has almost no visual description mm-hmm. because he just doesn't picture things in his head, and when he reads, he skips visual description he just kind of jumps over it that's not mm-hmm. it has no
0: meaning to him really huh yeah it's 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 fascinating.
1: Okay, now it's time to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. But when we come back, more on The Mind's Eye and aphantasia.
0: All right, so just how common is aphantasia? Um, it's a difficult question because yeah. this is something that hasn't really been uh in the public mindset. It hasn't been out there. It hasn't been something you get a pamphlet on until very recently.
1: There was one interesting study on this from before it had a name, before this aphantasia term came out, that was studying uh, sort of the lack of generative power and mental imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that was in 2009, right, a uh, study by Fall. Yeah, Bill Faw, mm-hmm, psychologist. And what did it find?
0: Uh, he found that between uh, 2.1% and 2.7% of 2,500 participants in his study claimed to have no visual imagination.
1: So um, that's where we got that number up at the beginning that it might right. be around one in 50 of you who just didn't see any pictures when you were following along in the story with us.
0: Yeah. Now, of course, we have to, that, that number is not coming from like a, a, you know, large scale study. So the yeah. results aren't really fully supported, but it gives us sort of at least a ballpark, I think.
1: Yeah. It's something to work with. Right. Uh, but, but a lot of this recent research has popped up because of an interesting I'm about to use a great word here, synergy between <laughs> uh, between actual medical research and some writing in the popular press. Actually, I think mm-hmm. like Carl Zimmer's articles yeah, had something Discover to Magazine. do mm-hmm. with people coming out of the woodwork to say, hey, now I have this experience of aphantasia. I, yeah. I can't make mental pictures, but it started
0: with the uh, research of Adam Zamon, right? Yeah, he's a professor of cognitive and behavioral neurology at the University of Exeter Medical School and along with co-authors uh, um Michela Diwara and Sergio Della Sala uh they coined the term aphantasia in their 2015 paper Lives without imagery congenital aphantasia that was published in the journal Cortex. Uh,
1: Now, people had, as we said, previously described things along these lines. Like it had always been kind of noted that, well, there are some people out there who say that they can't create any
0: mental pictures, but nobody really looked very deeply into this. Right. And I think some of the I think the earliest example that the, the authors we were looking at were able to draw on was was just the 19th century. Now this condition, uh, yeah, the condition had in these earlier works, the condition had previously been referred to as a defective revisualization or visual ear reminiscence. What a great word,
1: <laughs> ear reminiscence. Somebody was trying to make us
0: say that. Yeah, sorry, not going to work. It's a fantasia. <laughs> uh, and there are skeptics actually out there who say that. That what we're talking about here does not exist at all, I think that's fascinating mm-hmm. because how would you prove them wrong? yeah, and why why would you make that argument? i I don't know
1: well, I mean um, arguing about the existence of somebody else's internal experience, I mean th- that's just it's crazy,
0: yeah it I mean it almost seems seems like you'd have to be making the counter argument of saying oh, you don't have aphantasia, you just have a lazy mind. Right. <laughs> your imagination is just a bit stunted.
1: But I can understand why people might be tempted to this direction, because I, as, as we've said before, I think you probably would agree with this, I can't imagine what this is like. Yeah. I, I have no ability whatsoever to put myself in a position of not being able to make mental pictures that I don't even understand what that means, really.
0: Right. It's kind of like... <laughs> If most of us are more or less the same computer hardware yeah. with differing software, you know, we can talk all day about I don't understand how your software works. I, and this is how my software works. But here we're talking about essentially a, a difference in hardware. Um, I don't know if that analogy completely holds up, but essentially this, this something a little more, uh, uh, you know, base level is is different. And, and how do we even begin to describe that to each other?
1: Yeah. So Zaman first started studying this, I think in 2010, right? Mm-hmm. Because of, uh, the, the story of this. So there was a, a patient who reported having contracted, like acquired aphantasia after a medical procedure, right? Right. So there was a 65-year-old man who had coronary angioplasty, and that's where they, so if you have a blockage in one of your arteries or something like that, they'll open up one of your arteries and stick a catheter in it, and uh, somewhere along your body, wherever the blockage is occurring, they'll inflate a small balloon or something inside your artery to widen it, essentially, and allow easier passage of blood.
0: Yeah, it's not the kind of thing that you would, Initially, imagine uh, altering your your brain functioning. Yeah, but.
1: and it's generally not considered a major surgical procedure, right? It's like it's you. I think you're typically left awake for it. They don't even necessarily put you under, though. They might need to give you some drugs to calm you down. Uh, but yeah, it's it, this is this is not like a gigantic big deal. So it's coronary angioplasty, and after the procedure, this patient was unable to form mental pictures, and he had not had this problem before. And so, yeah, and that's where this study comes in. And afterwards, after there were some pieces published about this, Zaman started to hear from people who said, "Hey, I have this condition." Mm-hmm. And not only do I have it, I didn't get it from I didn't have an angioplasty or any uh, you know injury or or surgery. I've always had it. This is just how I am." So
0: Zaman and his uh, co-authors, they they looked at 21 of these self-reporting cases. And they discovered uh, that most of these individuals um, kind of discovered their condition uh, their own condition in their 20s when through conversations or or readings they found a discrepancy between how other people described the use of the mind's eye and their own experiences
1: can you imagine i i just have a hard time imagining how you get that far in life without realizing now this is another thing that's addressed yet again in that that essay i mentioned by Blake Ross mm-hmm. where he just talks about how Whenever he heard people using the language of the mind's eye or talking about, you know, picturing something, imagining something, he thought it was all metaphorical. He thought they were just talking about conceptually meditating on the idea of a beach or something. So you're sitting there thinking about the concepts of sand and water and sunshine and umbrellas. But he didn't realize that other people were literally seeing something in their mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like we said earlier when one when you have all these different types of memory and if one is taking, a, you know, a back seat, the other ones are going to compensate. So, it's not like if you have aphantasia, you're not going to be able to function in society at all. It seems like quite the contrary. Uh individuals find a way to function. They find they they just end up utilizing these different modes of memory. Okay,
1: but of these 21 self-reporting cases, what did Zaman find about them?
0: Well, So we found that 19 of the 21 were male, and uh, it's worth noting that this might have more to do with the readership of Discover magazine. Right, this is not a randomized study, self-selected, self-reported. Right, this is where people would have read that Carl Zimmer article, and they were the ones that said, hey, so yeah, it just might have to do with the male readership of Discover. On the other hand, they found that uh, five of the twenty-one reported uh, that it affected relatives as well. This Re- is
1: something I've read of people's experiences online. Some mm-hmm. of them say, "One of my parents ha- has
0: this." Yeah, so this leads us to believe, yeah, it might be hereditary. And then uh, ten of the twenty-one said uh, said that all um, all versions of the imagery were affected.
1: Now, uh, now, like I alluded to earlier, this does seem to me, based on what I've read so far, to be sort of a um, – it's not necessarily an all-or-nothing. Right. It's sort of a spectrum condition because one of the things that these people reported is that it's not like they've never, ever in their entire lives seen a mental image. They just generally don't see them. Uh, like some of them sometimes reported that they might have had very brief involuntary mental images – like uh they, they in, might involuntarily, quote, flash an image of somebody's face. Yeah. But it's just that this is rare and they can't do
0: it on command. Right. It's something that just might occur during while they're awake. It might occur during dreams.
1: Some of them. This is another thing. The, the interesting uh, variation on dream experience. Some report that they don't have dreams at all or mm-hmm. don't remember having them if they do have them. And some report that they do have dreams and can experience visual content and dreams, but just can't do it while they're awake or on command
0: yeah Zeeman is a big believer that this is essentially a variant of neuropsychological functioning kind of like synesthesia in a sense, huh. and again kind of on a on a spectrum as well so uh, so again don't think of it as a uh, you know as a, as a as a brain injury don't think of it as a uh, as as an ailment, it is just a different uh, a, a different way that the the mental chorus is coming together to perceive reality.
1: Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting is uh, so we've been talking about images being visual as in like what, you know, light photons and uh, the mm-hmm. eyes. But this does seem to extend to varying degrees to other senses as well. Right. Some of the people who report that they have a fantasia for visual images also can't imagine the feelings of other senses, if you know what I mean. And yeah. then some report that they sort of can Again, making it seem like a kind of spectrum issue. Like, can you hear a piece of music that you're not currently listening
0: to? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's another good one. I uh, mean, I, I certainly
1: can. Like, one of the ones I wanted to think was the, the Star Wars theme. I can just play the whole Star Wars theme in my mind from beginning to end.
0: Yeah. And certainly we've all experienced earworms. So that's kind of a right. variant of that. Now, um, also in this, uh, the Zaman um, paper they said of of the individuals a number of them reported modest effects on their relationships which Mm -hmm. i guess one can imagine if you and your uh your significant other are ultimately uh, engaging with mental imagery in drastically different ways and also 14 of the 21 participants reported difficulties with autobiographical memory so here's a quick quote from uh the, the paper the same number identified uh compensatory strengths in verbal, mathematical, and logical domains. Their successful performance in a task that would normally elicit imagery uh, count how many windows there are in your house or apartment, et cetera, was achieved by drawing on what participants described as knowledge, memory, and sub-visual models. Yeah, this is interesting. So this, again, gets back into the idea that you end up just utilizing different modes of memory.
1: The workforce of the brain, yeah. Right. And because I can't imagine. So if somebody said, how many windows are there in your house, I would do that with a picture. I would picture yeah. my house and sort of picture walking around the sides of my house and seeing how many windows are there. But they can do this without the picture. It's not like they're unable to do it. So there's something else kicking in. Must be conceptual facts logged about the house. Okay, so we need to take one more quick break, and then we'll be right back with more
0: Aphantasia. Now, that uh, BBC paper that we mentioned earlier by James Gallagher – In that paper, Gallagher uh, spoke with one Neil Kinmuir of Lancaster. Uh, This is a self-reporting individual with blindness in the mind's eye, and he provided some interesting insight on the condition. Uh, So I have just a couple of quotes here from that, that piece that I found were interesting. He said, quote, My stepfather, when I couldn't sleep, told me to count sheep, and he explained what he meant. I tried to do it, and I couldn't see any sheep jumping over fences. There was nothing to count. Oh, no. That's a that's that's an interesting because I guess that might be one of the earliest examples of of here mentally mentally imagine this like with my own uh, um, son. I I had a a similar situation like I distinctly remember the first time I told him to close his eyes and encouraged him to imagine an elephant because he was really obsessed with with elephants at the time. Yeah. And uh, I saw the delight on his face as he imagined the elephant um but you know after doing this research i realized well there's equally a possibility that we wouldn't be able to see the elephant and you know there wouldn't be anything you know, wrong with him if he couldn't see it in the bbc piece um the the uh, the interviewed individual uh, neil kinmuir also said that he had uh, a terrible memory but he was good with facts and uh, and then there's just an additional quote this is the hardest thing to describe what happens in my head when i think about things when i think about my fiance there is no image but i am definitely thinking about her i know today she has her hair up at the back she's brunette but i'm not describing an image i am looking at i'm remembering features about her that's the strangest thing and maybe that is a source of some regret
1: yeah i mean this is a thing because typically these people report that they I mean, it's not like they can't they don't know what somebody looks like Right. They- it's
0: not like that Seen in, uh, like Hannibal where they, they show face blindness as just seeing people with like smooth skin over their face.
1: It's- yeah. What's that condition called? A congenital prosopagnosia? Is that it? Where you, you, uh, have a born condition where you just can't recognize faces. Right. People, mm-hmm. you see people who are familiar to you, but you just, they just don't look like anybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, whoever that is. And, and it's not like that. You, or at least not for everybody. Like we said, there seems to be a wide variation in how this applies to people's lives. But I, I haven't read that it's like that for most people. It seems like they report, yeah, they can recognize people once they see a picture of of uh, a close family member or of the president or whoever it is. They know who it is. They just can't make the picture without looking at it. It's almost kind of like uh, we talked about in the P versus NP episode, mm-hmm. like the kinds of problems that once a solution is presented, you can easily check to see if it's Correct. Yeah, but you can't come up with the solution in a reasonable amount of time by yourself. Uh, it sounds like a version of that. You can't make the picture, but when somebody shows you the picture, you can say, "Oh, yeah, that's it."
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But anyway, I I just find this condition really fascinating. And so, if you yourself are somebody who thinks you may be uh, experiencing aphantasia, or if you just want to learn more about it, one interesting resource I think would be to go and look at some of the message boards online that have recently been created by people who claim to have this experience. Uh, because there, there's one I found that was uh, afant.asia. Yeah nice yeah but Mm -hmm. it's uh it's just like a forum online of people talking about their experiences uh and it seems to be a lot of people having this kind of uh this uh awakening kind of experience they're like oh man i didn't even realize that this was what was causing all this confusion between me and other people all these years or i I didn't realize i was the uh i wasn't the only one who was like this or you know people really seem to be Having a lot of fun coming together with a community of other people who have this same issue.
0: Well, like it reminds one of the whole, you know, the old uh, example of, "Hey, what if when I think of purple and you think of purple, what if we, what if we're each seeing different colors?" Yeah. But well, there's never a, a way to prove that out. But the, but this is kind of like a case where what it, it's kind of like if you were one day able to say, "Oh yeah, the 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 purple I see is different from the purple these people see." I'm gonna, I'm gonna go hang out now with individuals who see purple the way I see
1: purple. I never understood what the deal with Barney was, but now I get it. (laughs) Uh, No, but I, so I have all these questions about Mm a fantasia, like what it means, and uh, again, just to emphasize, it does seem like we haven't nailed down that there's a specific Cause and a very specific effect yet, because there seem to be a, a range of different ways this manifests in people's minds. It's associated with different things. Some people dream, some people don't. Some people have memory problems, some people don't. Um, but one of the things I was wondering about was: Can aphantasiacs hallucinate? Yeah. So, what if an aphantasiac takes a drug that often causes visual hallucinations? Do they see anything different?
0: Yeah, are they just going to get the non-visual hallucinatory effects uh or is it going to sort of uh, ignite a type of visual imagery that isn't normally there, sort of heighten the flashes that some of the, you know the 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 occasional flashes that some of these individuals experience.
1: Yeah, and so I looked this up actually on, yeah. the, on the forum boards and they had actually addressed it. So one member of a message board said a, they they typed a question that struck me as intriguing. This person said They were confused. Essentially, they said, "How is hallucinating different from seeing things in your mind?" Again, that question is Mm. hard to answer. But to somebody who has a you know a mind's eye, it's very clearly different. I I don't feel like I'm hallucinating when I imagine something. But try to describe the difference. Well, you're seeing something in your mind that's not there. Okay, that sounds like hallucination. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, but then it's also yeah, but then it's also just like seeing. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, we come back again to the uh, the cave. Uh, and we're all still lined up uh staring at the, the the play of shadows on the wall. Yeah. Some of us maybe just have a a slightly different view of the shadows than others. Okay, Robert, I've got a question for you. Okay, hit me. Uh do you think you could
1: try to simulate this? In your in your own mind, like, could you try? I know you, you, it would be impossible for us to really fully be able to do it. But can you try to go through a, a standard day to day process, something you would do all the time without using any mental pictures? I was trying this morning and I couldn't do it. Just yeah, I don't trying, I Yeah. Trying not to think of mental images immediately calls to mind mental images. It's like, you know, telling somebody like, don't think of a rhinoceros wearing a jetpack.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you just
1: did it. Uh, and even it works in the, in the general sense, just saying try not to think of mental images and immediately my mind is filled with rhinoceroses and jetpacks.
0: Yeah. I mean, if anything, I have to try and keep from daydreaming and keep from, or keep from, you know, pummeling myself with, uh, with different mental images, uh, and, and actually focus in on a task, you know? Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, uh, the way this really seems like it would come through is like, how does if you can't have mental images, how do you have fantasies about things you would like to do? So you imagine, you know, your boss makes you furious and you wish you could punch him in the nose. You wouldn't actually do it, but you at least have that image for a moment. Right. Uh, I think that's probably a nearly universal experience for people. And you get the
0: catharsis of having. Thought of it,
1: (laughs) but but what happens if you can't have that image in your mind? Hmm. Do you do you think about it conceptually? It's like I I just think about the concept of punching my boss in the face.
0: Well, then also, even if like I was just thinking to myself, like, what are some of the times when I'm actually able to to not you know mentally imagine anything and have these mental uh, visualizations in my mind? I think, well, okay, maybe when I'm doing yoga because I'm able to sort of shut out a lot of stuff. I'm able to shut off. The default mode network to a large extent. But even then, if I'm focusing on a pose, I am also focusing on a mental image of what I m- must look like in that pose, uh-huh. which may or may not have uh, match up to uh, how I'm actually doing the pose. So what is it like then to engage in, in, a, in a physical activity like that with a fantasia? Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, obviously you can do it but it it just kind of drives home just how much um mental uh, visualizations uh, h- how big a role they play in just everything we do. Okay, another question. Okay. Fiction writing. Yeah.
1: This is something again from the uh from the Blake Ross piece. So he's he is uh he's done some screenwriting mm-hmm. and he describes his process for fiction writing without having mental images which he described in terms of words and parts of speech. I thought this was interesting. So he said, like, when I'm imagining something, I imagine a noun, the word, and then I imagine a verb that follows it, the word. Um, and so there's something very different about his process for writing than I would have. So w- when I'm imagining a scene, there's... There's translation going on. I think of a picture and then I have to put the picture into words. But could it be possible that this allows people to do creative writing without any translation? The original creative thing that's happening is words.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Like they're not having, they're not in that situation that I mentioned earlier where As an artist or a creator of any kind, you are stuck trying to translate the the mental image into something another person can share in. Like you said, there's no translation going there.
1: Well, it makes me wonder if the maybe the ultimate form of direct written uh, communication with almost nothing lost in between would be an aphantasiac writing to another aphantasiac. Maybe yeah. somebody because there you're not translating it into pictures on both sides uh or on either
0: side. I will say that something this does remind me of is like in my own writing process, there's, there's definitely the point where I have an image in my mind or a scene in my mind, characters in my mind. And I'm trying to bring that to life on the page. But then if, if I'll get into these situations where I'm writing and in a way, what I'm writing is coming before the mental image. Mm-hmm. So I kind of create the point, not to say it's, it's a Fantasia at all, but I'm kind of writing before the mental visualization. I'm kind of reading what I've ri- I've written and am experiencing it more or less in real time as a reader would.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I bet you've had the experience, I know I have, of writing something before you get the picture mm-hmm. and then getting the picture and then going back and revising what you've written based on the picture.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. This is, so this is, yeah, the, the writing is definitely a fascinating area to think about this because it is this sort of, it's the mental image, but then the stripping down of the mental image, the translating it into a, into another form. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it's fascinating to be coming into this topic and uh, it's such an interesting time for it. You know, when when it seems we're, we're on the cusp of a lot of new learning about what this condition is, how many people have it, what it's like for them. And hey, if you out there actually experience this, if you have some level of aphantasia or you're toward that end of the mental imagery spectrum, I I think it would be great to hear about your experience if you want to write in and tell us what it's like
0: yeah, and if you're on the other end of the uh, the spectrum, if you're a hyper visualizer. Uh, let us know about that as well. Uh, in the meantime, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is the mothership. That is where you will find all the podcast episodes. You will find videos, blog posts, links out to social media accounts such as Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. We also have accounts on Tumblr and Instagram. And if you want to get in touch
1: with us with your experience of mental imagery or with feedback on this episode or any other, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.